0: It's The Wonky Show. We're talking new COVID restrictions and what happens at Christmas, culture wars and a new report on graduate
3: outcomes. It's probably right that we probably start thinking about stepping away from calling it a culture war because it really moves the conversation to to a different space and it actually taint, it kind of sort of blurs the, the conversation. We 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 can have these different conversations uh, if it, where we have um, inequality affecting work, white working class boys and actually having uh, uh, being affected in education. I think there needs to be there needs to be more done to enable and.
0: Welcome to The Wonky Show, your direct way into this week's higher education news policy and analysis. I'm Wonky's Editor-in-Chief, Mark Leach, and joining me to dig into big topics this week, I've got two wonderful guests. In Cheltenham, we have Rachel Hewitt, Director of Policy and Advocacy at the Higher Education Policy Institute. That's Happy, Rachel, you're higher to the week, please.
4: Well technically it's from the end of last week but I'm still catching up on That's something. That's fine. We had, the, um, we had the Cheltenham Literature Festival here and we managed to go and see some things in person at a social distance um, which was very nice to do something slightly normal in these strange times.
0: And in Bristol we have Emmanuel Ducru, Deputy Head of the Department of Applied Sciences at UWE. Emmanuel, you're hired to the week please. Um,
3: I'd say my highlight of the week has been actually watching some of the uh, protests globally in terms of actually reducing police brutality and stopping inequality
0: Yes, and I think we'll get onto some of those things later in the show Right, let's start with the national news about a new tiered COVID restriction system and just today um, a hint from the Westminster government that they're planning a pre-Christmas university lockdown It's been
3: another turbulent week, Emmanuel, what is going on? Well, the conversation around trying to uh, institute a lockdown um, sometime early December for, for a couple of weeks before students go home is what is what is going on. And I find it particularly interesting because like, I'm not sure how that is supposed to work where uh, universities are expected to close that lockdown and then students stay on and then... Get them home within two weeks to get to Christmas. So it just appears there seems to be some obsession about Christmas rather than actually trying to see that we get uh, this this virus completely out of uh, out of our space. And I think that's really should be the priority rather than focusing on Christmas.
0: Yes, Rachel, it does seem like a lot of policy is driven about what happens kind of on the twenty fifth of. December, but I mean, it's not clear if this plan was to be implemented. It's it's not clear how students would get back to university in time for the start of term in January for the starters.
4: Yeah, it's a, it's definitely a complex one. I mean, I sympathize to some degree. Um, we saw some of the sort of outrage there was when there was discussion about whether students would or wouldn't be able to go home for Christmas. So I think there's some of it is in response to that. Um, but I think in some ways we talk about students as if they're sort of different from the rest of the population in terms of thinking about you know whether they should be uh, limiting their activities a bit like what what happened in Scotland and I think actually students in some ways are more like the rest of the population and we should be aiming to treat them in that way but obviously it's more complex because the way that we treat them including on the electoral roll is that they have they have two homes and that that raises issues.
0: Yeah I mean and there's all sorts of other problems isn't there because the the term dates of different universities um, don't map neatly against the dates that have been Leak to the press and you'd be sending, you'd be keeping students locked down in reading week and all sorts, all sorts of, all sorts of anomalies. But there's, there's also this, the, the new tiers that be announced this week and, um, many universities in the UK essentially in, in tiers that require all, um, all online learning. So that's, that we started with Northern Ireland and many universities preparing for, uh, online only in the next couple of weeks yeah, yeah that is the case and and I think it,
3: it is it is quite tricky as Richard just said and I think um, they're moving on lot to online only it might be quite tricky as well when you have pro- uh, courses which are more practically driven I think people talked about medical programs the applied science programs because we need to still think about the type of graduates we're going to uh, have at the end of the degree. so I think it's something which needs to be I think the government needs to engage with universities a bit more and have universities sitting there right at the table in, in that conversation because we need to be able to plan. And universities have actually done quite well in terms of creating uh, uh, situations for students to be able to come in, uh, work t- face-to-face in, in some cases. But I think going online completely might not work for every program, and I think that's something that needs to be considered.
0: And, and isn't the board problem kind of the question of, of, of what they do when um, – you know, when, when, if there's there's kind of no official events, no official kind of social activities um, and all the teaching is online, I think a lot of people are worried about students getting cooped up in their rooms.
4: I think it's um, difficult because students may end up finding that they are socialising in their rooms, working in their rooms, um, studying in their rooms. And obviously that is not really what university halls were intended for, for those who are living in halls. Um, So I do think it is challenging. But then I think, well, I don't think we can pretend that there was an easy solution for this year. And if we say, well, students are learning online, so they don't need to be on university campuses. Well, actually, do students want to be, you know, for those students who do live away from home, do students want to be sent back to live with their parents, having had a, a long period uh, from March of, of, um, of sort of being limited to that environment anyway? I think it's, I think it's a really complex issue, definitely.
0: Hmm. I mean, do you, would you, would you imagine most of, not all universities in the UK to be on, online only or, or substantially online by, by Christmas at this rate?
3: universities are are substantially online, operating online, doing blended learning activities um, and limited teaching uh, and face-to-face teaching. So I think that's something which most universities I believe are already doing. Uh, So I think it's just a case of I also think there's there's a need to engage the students themselves because we're trying to make decisions for a community, a whole large group of people and we're not really seeing the viewpoint of the students themselves and I think it's important to engage the students the student unions in these conversations because um, we're making plans across across government, across institutions and i don't really know how much of the student voice has been heard in this conversation
0: yeah i'd agree with that and and i mean do you emmanuel i'm interested to know what what, what the picture is like in your department and how, how many programs are online and what interaction have you had with students so far this term
3: uh, what we did was we actually decided to do something called uh, we started a, a, an early program where rather than just get students in immediately we we sort of ease students back in in terms of getting them to understand um some of the systems because people are going digital, not all students are able to operate, were able to operate digitally before now in terms of uh, having the right systems, the computers, because of social inequalities. So I think part of what we've been trying to do is actually just ease the students back in, get them set up on the systems, knowing how to operate all the systems, and then teaching, the teaching actually begins uh, in, in the next week. So that's what we've been doing over the first few weeks, and that has gone quite well. Uh, but most of our teaching actually, so we're doing more blended approach, but predominantly, I think a lot of our work will be online rather than face to face. Hmm.
0: And, and what about, um, cause students themselves? What, what sort of interactions have you, have you had? And, and have you got any kind of feedback about their experience so
3: far? Uh, so far, a lot of students have found it quite useful because they understand the situation. I think a lot of the students know that we're all in a difficult situation now. Students know that even across those who are coming in, know about wearing masks, the social distancing themselves. So it's something which the students are aware of. And I think it's really about how we work best with them to make sure that actually we all get through this period together rather than doing something on one side and then the students are doing something on the other side. It's how we actually get them to work together with us. So, so far, it's going quite well. They've engaged quite well online as well uh, because we've used a lot of different uh, technological uh uh, uh, tools, things like uh, using Mentimeter uh, uh, um, quizzes and other other things. And I think a lot of students have qu- engaged quite well with that.
4: Yeah, I think, I mean, I would echo what Emmanuel said about the um, needing to listen to the student voice. And also, I suppose, making sure that we don't fall into traps of uh, focusing on sort of one student voice and thinking about, you know, students who are uh, living in halls, which is obviously, there are also students who will be you know, living in HMOs and students who commute into university and students who are having very different experiences. And I think we need to make sure that we don't uh, let government push us into falling into the trap of kind of just thinking about one type of student experience, because like every year, there'll be very different experiences going on.
0: Right. Let's see who's been blogging for us this week. My name is Graeme Allison and I'm director of the National Education Opportunities
5: Network, On NEON, which is the national professional organisation for access and widening access to higher education. My piece is based upon a pamphlet we released this week called The Future of Student Outcomes, which brings together uh, 10 particular perspectives on how we address the attainment gap between different groups and we improve graduate uh, employment outcomes, particularly for those from disadvantaged Background. Really, what the piece argues, and what the conclusion of the pamphlet argues, is that we need to move away from a participation and quality-based approach to outcomes, which is a government approach, i.e., there's low quality and low value courses, to student-focused-based approach to outcomes, where we focus on actual students, we focus on those who aren't achieving their goals, and we focus on how we, as a sector, ensure that they do achieve their potential in higher education
0: next the culture wars continue um and student unions are called for a calm and uh just dis- i'll start that one again right the culture wars seem to continue um student unions are called for a ceasefire the government wants universities to adopt the ihra definition of anti-semitism uh, and there's been plenty of other battles um in that war as, as well this week um a thousand sighs uh from over here <sighs> rachel what are your thoughts
4: yeah, so there's obviously been a few things happening on this this week, and there's also been, you know, a lot going on on this in, in recent weeks and months. I thought the two pieces on the wonky site about this this week were both uh, really good. Um, the piece from Ed Dorrell, public first, highlighting that actually we can't just sort of get frustrated with this issue. We need, we need to respond to it because the government are going to act on this, and actually we need to work out ways in which we can pitch ourselves as working with the government rather than just working in opposition. I thought his suggestion about getting involved in the levelling up agenda was really interesting and a really fantastic piece from the group of student union leaders on why and how we should engage with government and how we should be responding and not reacting. I thought it was particularly impressive given the pressure that student union leaders are under at the moment with all the other challenges that are going on. But I think they are right. It's frustrating to have to focus on this topic at the moment but it clearly is an issue that's not going to go away. The culture wars are here to stay, I think. Um, it aligns with the Prime Minister's interests and it's a really easy way to kind of shift focus, um, perhaps off some of the government's own activities um, and an easy target for them to pick out. So it's a topic that we should be engaging with, but I think it's really challenging to see how we can engage um, and not come across as defensive in our response to it.
0: Yeah, it, it feels like hopefully the start of a bit of a tipping point in in kind of a sector response. So the SU, uh, I think the SU intervention is interesting, and I think there's there's more to come from that. And um, we've been asked to help them out, help them uh, pull some of that together. I think there's some really interesting conversations to be had about the role of student unions. Um, and um, at, at Doral's point, as you say, is is that the sector needs to take this agenda seriously. It's not going away, and the and the government is is in it to win it. Um, I mean I'm I'm interested, Emmanuel, to to what extent do you think um we should as a kind of as a sector be pushing back against um some of the narratives that the government like to purport about free speech, about um uh about campus culture? And and, and or, or how much do we do we say,
3: well you know, this is Boris Johnson's agenda and actually... I I would agree with Rachel, this is a political sideshow and I think there needs to be some pushback because I think there needs to be a clear focus on what the problems are right now, which is obviously the pandemic and COVID. Uh, so it's important that we, we keep these conversations going. It's important that where, the, where we have cases of um, antisemitism and any form of uh, uh, issues around... Uh, uh, hate speech and uh, and things like that that we, we're able to p- collectively push back because I think it's a societal issue that everyone is actually supposed to be involved with but I think it's, it's just quite interesting how the conversation around the war and woke seems to be coming up right now when we're supposed to be talking about um, trying to get ourselves to a, a place where we're all safe and healthy.
0: I was interested by the intervention by uh, Matthew Goodwin this week. He's, he's, I, I think, um, fair to say a bit of a culture warrior himself. Um, he's professor of Politics at, at the University of Kent and he told the select committee this week, um, he, 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 kind of issued a warning about white working class boys. I just, I've got a quote. He said, um, Because if if we're now going to start teaching them in school, but not only do they have to overcome the various economic and social barriers within their community, but they also need to now start apologising for belonging to a wider group which strips away their individual agency, then we're just going to compound many of the problems. If you go into these communities and try and tell them they're suffering from white privilege, it seems to me to be a completely nonsensical response to this problem. They're way behind everyone else. They're falling through the cracks. Now, I'm interested by these remarks i mean i don't know the extent that you know matthew goodwin is an expert on um uh on on people's attainments in different uh, in different socioeconomic groups in different um in different places but there seems to be a bit of a new front in the culture war um i wonder if either of you got a, a take on kind of where this is going to go and the, the way you know where we kind of intersect with um some of the conversations that are going on about race in the sector right now
4: yeah, I think, I mean, I think that issue clearly just conflates two different issues. There's an issue with educational attainment, um, particularly amongst white working class boys. And there's an issue with, um, you know, systematic racism. And I don't think that we should be conflating those two issues. I think we need to be tackling both of them. And we don't have a limited pot of things that we can be looking, looking at tackling and addressing. Um, we can, we can be doing both. So I think it's limiting to put it in the way that he put it.
3: I, I would agree with Rachel on that and I think it's probably right that we probably start thinking about stepping away from calling it a culture war because it really moves the conversation to to a different space and thequita it kind of sort of blurs the, the conversation we, we, we can have these different conversations uh if it, where we have um inequality affecting work, white working class boys and actually having uh, uh, being affected in education I think there needs to be there needs to be more done to enable and uplift and support uh, boys, uh, white working class boys but actually when it comes to conversation around race, I think it's really also knowing how to have that conversation. It is an uncomfortable conversation that I think people are un- uncomfortable having, the government's are uncomfortable having, uh, and institutions are still uncomfortable having, but I think it's something that needs to be at the forefront of, of some of the discussions that are ongoing right now because that then also links to the conversation around the attainment gap for black and black and uh, minority students uh, in higher educations in, in, in the UK. So that's something that I think it is an important conversation. It is... I think how it how it's, how it was phrased, I think, in the, in the report you mentioned, uh, really leaves a lot to be desired. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, one thing that culture warriors are very good at is finding these kind of wedge issues and these kind of points of dividing people into two different categories. And, and back your point, Rachel, about students, I mean, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a fair amount of people who like to separate out students in kind of policy making and societal terms. Uh, and we've seen, we've seen the effect of that, uh, over the last, over the last couple of, um, months particularly around the kind of things like COVID restrictions and that's the, the impulse to think that students are not part of society and they don't you know that the, their house on uh, at university is not their home you know I mean that that is that that's um that it's quite it seems quite pernicious because then it seems to me quite easy to then to then start ascribing different kind of motivations to those groups and um and it, it plays into the hands of um the people who kind of push on the free speech stuff and I mean that brings me on to my, my next point which is um, you know, a, a Doral, says that uh, and i think he's right the government's li- very likely to put some legislation into place um around these free speech issues uh, and and i wonder rachel what you think we should be doing now on kind of a policy level to try and engage with i know that i know that the bill has already been drafted a long time ago i mean i think this was first first done under uh, joe johnson when he was minister but it didn't see the light of day it's a short bill not sure exactly what it does that's different to existing laws and regulations but um is this something we should be, you know, using the sector's collective might in the Lords and elsewhere to try and to try and neuter?
4: Yeah, I certainly think there's a a po- point in kind of us seeking to respond to this or sort of get ahead of the issue. And I think the the response from the student union leaders was a good first step in that. I think it's really important that we. Um, Try and do that in a way that doesn't come across as defensive or dismissing when there are genuine issues, um, because I think that is also important. So I think a way of engaging with kind of um, policymakers on this that sort of engages with the issues. I mean, I don't know. Some some policy issues you can have more influence over than others. This seems like one that's quite... Um, uh, sort of embedded so I don't know how much influence we will be able to have but I certainly think it's worth uh, trying and worth trying to have a sort of mature conversation about that.
1: Hello, Jim from the team here. Um, I was on Twitter earlier this week, <laughs> funnily enough, and uh, I did a little thread of stuff that I've been hearing from what's been going on on the ground. So uh, I spend quite a bit of my week talking to uh, student unions every week as part of our wonky student unions thing, um, and I thought it might be handy in talking to Mark <clears throat> if we put into the podcast this week a kind of version of the thread on the stuff that I've been hearing about what's been going on in the ground. On the ground, hopefully, it's helpful uh, for some people. Um, look. Uh, Generally, the the big thing that's been in the press over the past few weeks has been halls of residence, and and, and my sense is, talking to people, that halls of residence now are pretty much under control, Uh, but it's HMOs where there is a bit of a wild west, uh, certainly, obviously, for students that are in an away-from-home mode rather than commuter students, and look lots of students union officers appear to know students in HMOs that have symptoms but aren't even getting tests let alone self-isolating and there aren't many universities that have meaningful self-isolation support and one of the things that I have put on the site this week on one corner um, is you know the sage view the sage view into government on uh, HMO compliance with test and trace generally Um, and if you look at HMO compliance with test and trace, generally, it's likely to be very low. When you add in the fact that students will be worried about missing things, uh, that kind of academic tourism, FOMO, missing out on face-to-face teaching and so on, then HMO compliance is likely to be even worse. And so, you know, whether or not universities or indeed government are able to put in place meaningful support for self-isolation for students in HMOs remains an open question. In general, there's lots of student feedback that is along the lines of this is nothing like I was expecting, uh, both from new and returning students and and a feeling of feeling trapped. Students expressing on social media, in emails and conversations with student officers and so on that they feel trapped physically, academically and legally. And the open question, I guess, is that if students do go home for reading weeks or Christmas, uh, whether that feels like escape and whether they then come back is is a whole different question. There's a whole bunch of really interesting academic stuff. There's lots of concern about placements, both public and private, uh, formally assessed and not, Uh, years in industry, work experience, and widespread panic setting in amongst students and no one really having answers about whether or not placements are going to be possible, going to go ahead and so on. Um, And you know, to the extent to which that requires the sector to get on top of those issues, that definitely feels like something that's happening in a lot of places on a lot of courses. Academics are generally coming off well uh, in terms of support and going the extra mile, except where they aren't, if that makes sense. Uh, as ever, we have a comparison problem. There are students on three modules that have got they're on four modules where three modules, uh, their academics are fantastic, one not so much. And students assume. Uh, The extent to which academics are going the extra mile isn't sustainable. You know, it's fairly obvious that it's it's not sustainable to students. And so there's an open question about whether or not it's possible to offer the level of extra support that students obviously require in this particular mode with the kind of current, um, you know, resources and, you know, mixture of blended and so on and so on. There's deep panic, uh, just to go back to that placement thing, about other postponed components. It turns out that Santa is not bringing a vaccine. Students are worried about the lack of answers they're getting on, stuff that's been put off till January, things like field trips and other components. Uh, And there's lots of worry about December, but actually hardly anyone is worried about January yet. But as I've said to people, it's hard to imagine that we're going to end up with careful guidance on how to get students that are away from home, home in December, But then have a free-for-all that kind of matches what we've just done in September, in January. So it seems to me that January's about to be a really interesting thing. There's lots, and I mean lots, of concern amongst students about the notion of equivalence and necessity. Two things going on there. So on equivalence, this is where students are being told that something that's happening online matches face-to-face. So things like recorded lectures where a student can't ask any questions, for example. Uh, Lots of concern about what students are being told is equivalent. And then necessity, that's where a course component has gone, but the university is saying it isn't necessary either for the learning outcomes or for the contract. And lots of students are begging to differ. Uh, It's things like students only being allocated 30 minutes slots a week in studios uh, when the studio space is where they cut their teeth and, you know, understand how to do whatever it is that they do in the studio and so on in labs and other types of facilities. Lots of that is going to bite quite hard. It's not as simple as face-to-face teaching versus social activity. It's this wider stuff where students kind of independently learn using university facilities where things are really starting to bite from a student experience and consumer a law point of view. Um, there's lots of face-to-face teaching going on that has very few people there. Um, and there's also lots of dissatisfaction amongst students where a blend was promised, but that blend turns out to be five hours a term. And clearly, to some extent, there are you know, differences of opinion about whether or not there should be more face-to-face teaching on campus to respond to that or less face-to-face teaching, you know, given what Sage just said, the UCU position and so on. But I don't think anyone disagrees that students that have left home to go to university that then find they only really need to be there face-to-face for five hours in a whole term. is not a situation that's likely to pan out well in the medium to long term. Students are obviously going to be upset. Uh, returning students are really feeling a lack of opportunity to work with others and there being space to do that. The kind of group social learning thing is, you know, really coming through in feedback to student unions. It's perhaps less a social concern than an academic one, actually, that uh, new students know no better and fear they're just lonely. And lots of new students are reporting they have very, very few opportunities to kind of meet other students. People and that's starting to, as I say, bite. There's still tons and tons of organization and management chaos, timetabling chaos everywhere. Uh, You know, students who have, you know, something from 12 till 1 that's online, something from 1 till 2 that's face to face, and then something from 2 till 3 that's online, and they're just being nowhere to go uh, after the face to face thing in order to sit down and do the online uh, teaching. So that's definitely. A concern. Timetabling is still very difficult, clearly, in lots and lots of uh, institutions. Uh, lots and lots of concern about some equivalent components of courses not being credible. So, simulated virtual labs and things, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, and overall, where the student experience isn't awful, the real problem is that it's pretty thin. Is this it? Is the question that's coming up a lot mixed in with why am I here? There's a deep visceral upset at the lack of empathy from some people in the sector uh, and complete confusion that their brothers and sisters can attend after school clubs and carefully socially distanced extracurricular activity. But that at university, everything must be online and, you know, a real worry that they're going to get to the end of the academic year only having done face to face teaching um, for small parcels of the week and not really having the chance to meet other people so frustration uh some signs of depression if you look at the kind of Kubler-Ross grief curve Uh, and certainly students union officers are very worried about the next few weeks as money runs out the weather worsens and the nights draw in this is going to be a challenging three or four weeks as we're so distant from Christmas but uh, it's starting to get much darker so uh, that's broadly where we think uh things are at um and uh, I'll probably pop on again in two or three weeks on the podcast and try and give a another update on on the sort of things that are coming through in in, in surveys and and feedback to student unions. Good. Now, there's no point in me handing back to Mark and then Mark handing over to Mike. So every week on the podcast, we're delving deep into stories of how things were and how things came to be with Nottingham Trent's Mike Ratcliffe. Here's the hidden history of A. G.
2: Setting up a new university is an important thing to do. We've seen that the OFS have tried to create the opportunity for new providers to come forward, but it's a struggle. Let's imagine a a university that's trying to set out with a noble idea of trying to be a, a brand new university. If we go all the way back, we can find an example that could have been our third oldest university. Starting in 1876, New College, a dissenting academy in Hackney, uh, had the opportunity to do, do just that. Dissenting colleges were the only way for people who didn't subscribe to the Church of England uh, to get an education. They were excellent, um, very often of a very high quality, but they were often very, very fragile. They ran for a couple of years and then fell over. There was an attempt to draw all that together and to try to set up a new institution, an academical institution for the education of ministers but also to bring in liberal education as well. And this was set off. At the opening of the new institution, uh, one of the key speakers at the time was Andrew Kippis, and he talked about how this new university would have um, impressions of a religious and moral temper, but it was going to be important to ensure that it didn't deny education to the inferior orders of people. And he made a strong case for social mobility through education. He said... Besides, if in consequence of good natural powers, a rigorous application of their talent and the blessing of God on their endeavours, some of the children of poor can acquire considerable mental attainments and rise to a higher rank in society, why should this not be permitted? Why should all the advantages of life be confined to the few men who happen to boast of honourable earth or hereditary wealthy? 1876, Access Statement Time. Society would be improved by having more access to education. Nor can anything be more desirable than for gentlemen of original and or independent fortunes should possess a large fund of knowledge. This, next to piety and virtue, will be found the best method of enabling them to support their elevated stations with reputation and dignity. It was good for the rich to get an education as well. So they set up a, a new institution. They were slightly worried about being near to the institute, uh, London, but they set themselves up a whole set of um, rules to keep the students in and to make sure that they were, uh, had an exercise of prudent and vigilant discipline. And so the college was set up in Hackney, then a village near London, uh, but far enough away for them to be able to keep uh, an eye on the uh, students. They set up term dates and examinations and set out to employ uh, new professors. They were concerned, however, that uh, appointing these professors, they wanted to have enough money. So they wanted to have enough money to make sure that students would be taught well. However, the college ran into some issues. One of those was it had an obvious radical tint. Revolution happened in France, and the government was gripped by fear of revolution at home and invasion from France. College had built up a, a link with Joseph Priestley, and his international links were under suspicion. In 1794, a governor of the college was arrested for high treason. Never a good thing for a fledgling institution. And soon the Seditious Meetings Act banned lectures and discourses on supposed public grievances. So no freedom of speech for this, these, these poor people. And there was a lot of suspicion and concern about nonconformist ministers. Although Stone was acquitted, uh, very soon the college ran into problems. Its doors were closed as bankruptcy threatened and in June nineteen seventy nine uh, 1796, the college and its grounds were sold for £5,000. It's not hard to see that if it hadn't attracted this bad reputation, it could have gone on from strength to strength. It had a good foundation, high-quality lecturers, and was attractive to students. But it just happened at the wrong time, and if anything, it was closed because of this link of sedition. Other dissenting academies survived, some migrating to Oxford and Cambridge where they joined the universities. But it's not too fanciful to imagine that a Hackney university might have got underway and survived and been our third oldest university.
1: And before we hand back to Mark, here's Debbie with news of an exciting event coming up.
4: Hi, it's Debbie from Team Monkey here to tell you that on the 4th of November we'll be hosting an event bringing the sector together to talk about student retention at Don't Drop Out, Averting a Student Retention Crisis. We'll release new research into how students are feeling and hear from students' unions about what's going on in the ground. We'll think through the challenges for universities of keeping students on course, helping them socialise safely and maintain their wellbeing during all the disruptions they're experiencing due to COVID-19. And we'll ask about the national policy implications of a potential student retention crisis. As the government frets about how to bring students home for Christmas, should we really be thinking about what happens in January? do we need to create an exit strategy for students and a safety net for universities? That's Don't Drop Out on the 4th of November. To find out more and book your tickets, go to wonky.com forward slash events.
1: Now it's time for Yes, But Does It Correlate? Here to ask this week's correlation question is Wonky's Associate Editor, David Curdahan.
6: Welcome to Yes, But Does It Correlate? The podcast segment that follows the science on Twitter. You may have spotted over the weekend that a ranking of universities based on the number of takeaway food providers that deliver to campus was compiled by the good folks at Bansha University. I couldn't help but wonder if a university that is well served by Just Eat, other fast food apps are available, could get away with spending less on its own catering offer. So does the number of takeaways that deliver to campus correlate with the proportion of expenditure devoted to catering?
4: The new uh, heights that league tables can come up with. Uh, I I want it to, so I'm going to say yes.
3: Uh, I would I would probably say no to that because I think. Um we're not actually factoring all the different groups of students and probably students who are from different backgrounds in, uh, and and ethnicities who might not actually engage with some of those. So I think there still needs to be a bit more that uh, that can engage with universities. But I think I think a lot of it goes into catering at universities. But I think more students can be covered with catering services.
6: The bancher Just Eat ranking is a lovely proxy for how urban a university is, but it tells us nothing about catering spending. There is no semblance of a correlation whatsoever. The graph does note the UCL somehow spends nothing on catering, whereas the University of Essex spends nearly 1% of its total expenditure. The university campus best served by takeaway food is City University of London, with over 950 outlets delivering. The other data is derived from the HESAT finance release for 2018-19. And where the data doesn't exist, I've not plotted it.
0: And finally, NEON has put out a report on a new approach to student outcomes. Emmanuel, what are the highlights?
3: Well, uh, lo- looking at the, the, the report, we were talking about... Um trying to move, get the government to move away from thinking around low value courses and focusing on supporting students uh, who are unlikely to achieve good grades, because this report was actually looking at the attainment gaps and, uh, and, and the challenges that a lo- number of students having with attainment. And I think the go- that somehow I think because of COVID and, and, and from this report, they're thinking about actually, are, are we reducing some of these programs or reducing low value courses or uh, removing low value courses? But I think the focus from this report is actually moving away from that and starting to think about, um, supporting students who are unlikely to achieve good degrees because of maybe inequalities and other factors that we need to be able to identify, focusing on the strengths of the students rather than the courses themselves.
0: Yeah, Rachel, that seems like a, a sensible approach, doesn't it? I mean, given given where we've got to in this debate about low-value courses, which ends up a bit
3: a bit circular,
4: yeah, I mean I wrote a blog at the beginning of this year saying that 2020 was going to be the year of value. Clearly 2020 has not been the year of focusing just on value in HE, but it is it's a real persistent issue and and clearly like the culture wars issue it's not going to go away. So I think this report's a good step in actually thinking about this issue in a slightly slightly different way and there's some positive recommendations um you know, thinking about the ways that different groups of students can be engaged with and supported, not only through their time at university, but also beyond into the start of their careers. So I think it's a, it's a positive intervention into the kind of conversation about, about value of HE. Hmm.
0: I mean, it it seems like outcomes are kind of all the rage in policymaking, doesn't it? I mean, we're moving away from um, uh, NSS, for example, um, and uh, it's not hard to imagine a a TEF that's kind of completely about outcomes in um, in, in a year or so i 'm interested Emmanuel kind of how how it, that kind of debate chimes with with what you see about see the students and graduates coming through your your department and, and university i mean there 's obviously a lot of re- variation like you 've mentioned before um, of different groups and, and different universities but um, do, do, do you think that kind of the the measure of of, of what goes on at university is possible you could possibly map onto what the students end up
3: doing afterwards when they graduate sometimes you might find that the measures are important because then you can identify where, where you have gaps and where you have problems so I think with the outcomes measures I think it's, it's useful but the problem with that is it's always retrospective so you're not looking at something which is coming ahead you're looking at something which happened a couple of years ago and some, and with that I think with the introduction of the uh, graduate outcomes survey we're now looking at 15 months so basically you're looking at what happened 15 months ago of which um, it helps because then you can think about maybe interventions that can come in cr- across departments or for specific students but I think it's really about things about designing our learning for the future and designing learning with providers of opportunities so if we have providers opportunities saying to us these are the changes that are coming in the next five years we can work with our students to help them de- design programs that would get lead them to that to the sort of changes that will come in the future rather than looking at what we were doing two years ago or three years ago so I think somehow the, the, the outcomes measures while they're useful in a way, they're actually still sort of behind the times because you're looking at something that happened retrospectively, and we know that industry changes rapidly. Things change in industry rapidly, so a lot of the sector students might go to might actually be changing with it by the time they actually get to the point of getting their degrees anyway. So it is quite an interesting one, though.
0: Mm. And, and Rachel, I mean, the r- report notes the um, the 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 loss of st- of student work in the hospitality industry as a result of um, COVID nineteen restrictions I mean what what message should we be sending to students and how how should they find work?
4: Yeah I think it's really challenging at the moment we did some polling of students um, really at the start of the pandemic looking at how they thought about their future careers and the amount of responses that we got that focused on you know them having internship and placement opportunities cancelled because I think you know when businesses were struggling those were some of the easiest places to to let go so I think uh, career services I know will already be kind of taking a innovative approach to thinking about how they can support students um but there are going to be some um some industries that clearly are going to be really are really difficult to find opportunities in and students you know as you say sort of working in the hospitality industry alongside their studies just to support themselves i think the loss of those roles is obviously going to be challenging and could impact on retention for this year whether if students don't kind of feel they have the finances to continue with their degree so it's it's a difficult time i think both for kind of long-term careers and short-term focus on students being financially supported
0: we've written a lot of on the site about the idea of, of low value courses do you think this kind of thing is going to help us kind of break break that narrative and, and get away from away from that
4: yeah i think we need to keep sort of chipping away at it um i mean emmanuel was talking about um outcomes, which I agree cannot be the only way of looking at it. Um, I mean, I am slightly biased because when I worked at HESA, I did a lot of work on the graduate outcomes survey. Um, and one of the things that we did was develop three measures, which are kind of go beyond just looking at salary or whether someone's in a graduate job, looking at whether they, the graduate felt their, their job is meaningful to them, what they're doing is meaningful, whether they're on their future career path that they want to be and whether they're using the skills that they gained during their studies and I think that could add some nuance to the conversation we have if if we are looking at outcomes and using those to assess the value of courses well actually surely you know it's as important to know whether a, a graduate is on the career path that they've always wanted to be on as it is looking at their salary shortly after they've they've graduated
3: I, I, I do I, I, I agree with Rachel in terms of the the positives and the strengths of of having those sort of outcome measures but i think it's just really about getting i think in higher education we need to think about we need to ask ourselves questions as to whether the programs that we offer are relevant to the sectors and the 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 environments that we're expecting our graduates to go into are we always expecting them to go into jobs and we can when we can actually work with them in terms of developing their skills to contribute be maybe being entrepreneurs themselves or being um or moving with the transferable skills across sectors and things like that. So sometimes I think it's really about just thinking ahead. Where would we like our graduates to, to, to what, what sort of things do we want our graduates to do? And actually, do we know our graduates well enough to know the skills they are actually coming in so that we can work with them in developing those things? So I think it's, it's really, an, it's, not a, it's not a straightforward, simple one. I think it's a complex one, but I think it requires uh, whole interventions and, uh, and sort of broad approaches to be able to make it work.
0: Right, so that's about it for this week remember to delve deeper into anything we've discussed today you'll find links in the show notes don't forget you can subscribe to the podcast automatically just search for the wonky show via itunes your favorite android podcast directory or find the feed you need on wonky.com slash podcast and if you fancy appearing as a guest on the wonky show drop us an email on team at wonky.com and we'll be in touch so thanks to rachel emmanuel and everyone at team wonky for making it happen behind the scenes and until next week stay safe